Well, as we come to our time in the Word of God this morning, we will be turning our attention back to the Gospel of Luke. So I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me and turn in them to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, as we focus our attention on verses 7 to 11. Luke chapter 9, verses 7 to 11. Here's what Luke writes. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man? about whom I hear such things. And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking, with, taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. The crowds were aware of this and followed him. Welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. I'm sure at first glance, as you look at this passage, this is a rather mundane passage, at least by its surface reading, and yet it is a remarkable portion of Scripture. And it is remarkable not simply because of what we have before us here, and it's the Scriptures, and that in and of itself makes it remarkable because it's God communicating with us. <coughs> but it is remarkable because God has given us other Gospel writers along with Luke from whom we get other details about what is happening and from which we can draw implications for our own life. So this is actually a reminder through the power of gospel preaching, that when people are being changed by grace through faith, right? The, the gospel, Romans 1 verse 16 and 17 says, it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the God's means through which, by His grace and through faith, people come to know Christ and thereby are changed in a moment is a miraculous occurrence of divine resurrection power upon people when they come to know Jesus Christ by faith. And so here is a reminder to us that through the power of the gospel, through the power of gospel preaching, that people are changed and others begin to wonder and even become dangerous. You remember from our study last Lord's Day that the final words of Jesus to the disciples was about those who would reject the gospel. Back in verse 5 of this very chapter, he says, And for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. It's interesting that Jesus would say that because it was a Jewish custom that as they went about preaching, 
when they would go into some place telling the truth of Jesus Christ, that if the town rejected the truth that they were being told, if they rejected the gospel, then they were to shake off the dust from their feet as a testimony against them. And we need to understand that this is severity. There is severity in the symbology that Jesus is talking about here because if you were to go to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 15, in Matthew's gospel, referring to this very same moment, Jesus also had said to them these words, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those who reject the message of Jesus Christ. If they reject you, it's more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah when eternal judgment comes than for them. This is very severe. And so at the outset, we need to understand that there are serious consequences for rejecting the gospel. There are serious consequences for not believing by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, I don't think there are any more sobering words than those found by the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, all the way down through verse 9, which he says this, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Paul, of course, writing to the Thessalonian believers who were going through difficulties because they were Christian. He said this judgment is, is righteous judgment and it separates you and shows you your worthiness in the kingdom of God since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to, as to us when, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so this is all that what Jesus is, is intimating in verse 5 when he speaks of that reality and says, shake the dust off your feet. It was a symbol of judgment. An outward symbol of what was coming in the future. It was a warning to those who had heard the gospel and they continued to reject the truth of Jesus Christ that judgment was coming. In fact, in the Jewish culture, this was really in one sense a regular Jewish practice. So that when a Jew would go from town to town through non-Jewish areas, through Gentile lands, they would symbolically shake the dust off of their feet as they were leaving that area, thereby symbolically shaking off the influences of the pagan culture that they had just walked through. And over time, that symbol became a picture of what Jesus is referring to here, and that is judgment. Now think about what that's saying. I mean, think about this is God, the God of glory incarnate here on earth, and think about what he is saying. Jesus is telling his disciples, go and preach. Go and teach 
all that I have taught you. Go and say all that I have told you about the kingdom of heaven. Go and preach. And by the way, I'm not sending you into the Gentile areas. I'm not sending you into the pagan cultures around you. I'm sending you to preach to your own people. I am sending you out to the Jews. And if they reject it, if they reject the gospel, then symbolically let them know that they are no better off than the pagan nations around them. In other words, turning away from the gospel, beloved, is so serious that when one does that, then the only thing we can do for them is to warn them of coming judgment. You reject the gospel, the only thing I can tell you is judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. In fact, Jesus gets even more pointed in Matthew chapter 7 when he says this in verse 6, don't give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. That's pretty, pretty graphic language. Those are, are severe words because dogs in those days weren't like dogs in our day. They're not domesticated animals which you'd have hanging around sleeping with you on the couch. That's not what they were. They, were, they weren't pets. They were wild. They were dangerous. And the idea that someone would take something that was holy and what was being considered holy in those times as a sacrifice, going to the altar with your sacrifice, which was food of some kind, to take that sacrifice and just throw it to the dogs, throw it to the ravenous, was shocking. It would have been blasphemous. To say the least of throwing something as valuable as pearls into the swine pit, the apex of unclean animals... So both of those acts were the height of foolishness. No one would do that. You don't do that. And so what is Christ saying? He's saying that the wild dogs and the filthy pigs are those who permanently reject the gospel. They're just like that. They treat it as if it's nothing. And who was Jesus specifically talking about here in chapter 9, in the midst of his ministry. Well, he's talking about the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders were those who were rejecting the gospel and conspiring to rid the world of Jesus. They wanted to get rid of this guy. He was just upsetting them. And so the only message from them is one of pending judgment. That's what they need to hear. And so this is the essence of what is happening here. And tragically, that's the essence of what happens today in many places. We share and we share and we share the gospel and in the end if someone continues to reject what do we do? We have to just warn them of what is to come. When you warn somebody of the dangers to come it can be for you a dangerous venture. Why I've entitled our message this morning, gospel ministry has its effect and sometimes it's on us. It can be dangerous because we know what happens to John the Baptist. We, we know what happened there. It isn't recorded for us here in Luke chapter 9, but it's recorded for us in a few other Gospels, particularly in Mark's Gospel. So I want us to go over there for a moment. Go back to Mark chapter 6. 
Here we are in the midst of Jesus' ministry in Mark's Gospel. About halfway through the ministry, in a year and a half, like I said, he's going to be marched up to the hill of Calvary to die for sin. And so the region of Galilee doesn't have much more time with Jesus in a personal way, in in the sense of Him walking on the face of the earth. And so Jesus sends out these twelve. He sends them out with divine enablement. They have the, the ability to authenticate their message through the miracles that they will do. And they would be able to do those miracles for that very purpose. Not because everybody is equipped to do miracles. That's not what we learn in that passage. We just simply know that Jesus is giving them power to authenticate the reality of what they say by the fact that they can do these things. Preaching the gospel can be dangerous because truth always challenges sin. That's what they were doing. When sin wants its way... Sin can and often does lash out at those who are the messengers of grace. Sin doesn't want to hear it. And John the Baptist had been preaching the gospel and it led him to a prison cell. He ended up in prison because of it. And Mark 6 gives the details as to why. Verse 14 of that very chapter, it says in King Herod heard of it. This is the very thing about the men going out and preaching. When he heard of it, for his name had become well known. Whose name is he talking about? Talking about Jesus. When he heard of it, his name, Jesus, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. In other words, as if John the Baptist is God and he's working through these men. As if it's him who's doing it. In fact, Herod is rather confused. And back in Luke's gospel, he says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all this. This is the same guy. Same family of Herods who wanted Jesus killed when he was born 30 years ago. These are the same family. Why? Because they had heard this new child was newly a newly reported king. That's why they wanted him killed. In other words, in their mind, Jesus was a threat to their throne, a threat to their power, someone who would take away their regime. And so the Herod of that day set out to have him killed. Well, that was the father of the Herod here. But we understand God is sovereign and God mightily intervened and Jesus grew up until Herod's death and then came back with his mother and father. And so a whole lot is happening here in the background that we need to think through. And Jesus is accomplishing ministry. He's healing the sick. People who are possessed by demons are being freed from that bondage when Jesus just speaks a word. And even some dead are being brought back to life. And Luke says in his gospel that Herod was perplexed by all this. Perplexed by all this. It's an interesting word. It simply means he couldn't, make any, he couldn't make any sense of what was going on. It was shocking to him. He was, he was stunned. It was a, a total mental confusion in his mind. Why? Because he thought he had taken care of the problem. He thought he had gotten rid of the problem of the gospel sometime before. When? When John the Baptist was on the scene and he put him to death. 
And of course, Mark's gospel tells us how and why that happened. I don't want to go into it all, but it's right there listed for you if you're in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14 and going all the way down to the end. Tells you exactly what happened. Herod was one of the three sons of, this Herod was one of the three sons of Herod the Great. And upon his death, the empire of Herod the Great was then split by way of inheritance amongst his three sons. One son received half the kingdom, and the other two sons received a quarter of the kingdom. That's what tetrarch means, 125 25%. And the Herod who killed John the Baptist was the one who ruled the area that Jesus is ministering in up in Galilee. He ruled Galilee and Perea. And so he He's having this, as Mark's gospel tells us, he's having this illicit affair with his brother's wife, Herodias. And they had plans of getting rid of their prospective spouses when John confronts Herod with the whole issue. And he continued to confront him, as it says, with the truth. And in the end, Herodias, through a scheme, has John the Baptist beheaded. So Herod is totally confused in his mind when all this is going on with the disciples. He thought that, that the preaching of John the Baptist had been put to bed. He thought he got rid of that problem. How can this be? And yet here people are saying that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And so apparently his conscience has been bothering him, as it surely should, because at the widespread preaching of the gospel... He's being told, and even in his own mind, probably thinks that maybe John the Baptist has come back to life. And in some way, he's working to accomplish the miracles that are happening and all that he's hearing about. That's what he says. And the people were saying in Mark chapter 6, verse 14, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That's why all these miraculous powers are at work in him. So the message that's being preached concerning Jesus Christ is so impactful that even Herod's conscience begins to bother him. He's haunted by the murderous act that he carries out on John the Baptist. He's not troubled by the rumors about Jesus himself. He's troubled by his own conscience because Jesus Christ is again being proclaimed. That's exactly who John the Baptist was preaching. He doesn't like hearing that. Rumors about Jesus may have brought questions in his mind about what's happening. But the statement is clear that his condition of perplexity about John is why John? Because John spoke the truth to him. John spoke the truth to him. In other words, he's so bothered by what's happening that he really believes that John the Baptist is back from the dead and at work again. Which, interestingly enough, by the way, just a side note, would have had to go against his own even beliefs to arrive at that kind of conclusion because Herod was a proselyte Jew, this Herod, and he linked himself with the Sadducees, and the Sadducees had no belief in the resurrection. So he would have had to even go against his own thinking and stance with those religious people. So his guilty conscience is haunting him. 
And his conclusion is that John is back. Now go back to Luke chapter 9. Because Luke chapter 9, Herod says in verse 9, I myself had John beheaded. I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? John's wrestling with his own self. People are saying, this is John the Baptist. He says, listen, I'm the one who had John put to dead. So who's this guy? Who is this man? Others are saying it's Elijah the prophet. Others are saying some other prophet has come back from old. But Herod is perplexed about this man. This was his answer for Jesus. Who is this man? Who is this man? His curiosity, his perplexity only drove him to think of Jesus in similar fashion to how he thought of John. Remember, you read the accounts of John confronting Herod. He wanted to keep John around, it says. He didn't really want to put him to death, partly because the people really liked John and he didn't want to have a bad sense in their mind. And yet he was curious about John. He was curious about John's stance and why John would say the things he would, even to a man in power. So he wanted to keep John around in some way. He's intrigued by what John would say, but but by his stance in the truth, by his uncompromising life. And so I believe Herod wanted to see Jesus in the same way. That's why he says, and he kept trying to see him in verse 9. Here was another man that could that he could watch. Here was another sideshow at the circus. This was another man who, who just was intriguing to him. And so the disciples had been sent out. They have done exactly what Jesus has commanded them to do. They go out and they preach the gospel and they heal the sick. They cast out demons. And while the details of their short mission aren't included here in Luke's gospel for us, we know that God had used them greatly. God had used them greatly. They come back and they give an account to him of all that they had done. God was using them. In fact, the people in the high places had heard all about it. Herod hears about it again. The disciples are giving glory to God. They are crediting the power to do miracles to Jesus Christ. And Herod asks that question. It is that question that if you do not get it right, you will perish in unbelief. The very question he asks, who is this man? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Some said John came back to life. Some said Elijah Others were saying some other Old Testament prophet. Who is this man? That is the ultimate question, isn't it? That is the ultimate question. There is no other question. Who is this one that you're telling me about? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The question about Jesus is a question about his identity And it is the most important question that could be asked and the most important question that we as Christians could ever answer. Who is Jesus? 
The way that one answers that question will reveal their eternal destiny. Luke, in fact, believes this to be the question. And he records it asked in several different ways by several different people. In fact, notice in verse 18 of this very passage, he says, and it happened while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them saying, who do the people say that I am? So Jesus forwards that question even to the disciples. Tell me what's being said on the street. Who do people say that I am? Go over to Luke chapter 22. Over in Luke chapter 22, towards the end of the chapter, verse 67 and 66, well, we'll begin in verse 66. When it was day, the council of elders and the people assembled, both the chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. Who are you? But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. Verse 70, Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? We have heard from ourselves from your own mouth. Are you the Son of God then? They said to him. He said, Yes, I am. Who are you? I'm... God in the flesh. Notice in chapter 23, verse 3, when he's standing trial before Pilate, Pilate asks him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Who are you? This is the question on the mind of Luke all the way through the gospel. In fact, we have heard it several times already, even up to our study here in chapter 9. If you go back to chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, we see it there also. Chapter 5, verse 21, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began reasoning, saying, who is this man, verse 21, who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is this man? Chapter 7, verse 20. Same thing. Beginning in verse 18, the disciples of John reported to him all about these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the exalted one or do we expect someone else? And when the man came to him, They said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one? Who are you? We want to know with definitiveness. And of course, Jesus says, go tell John all the things that you see, right? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. Deaf hear, the dead are raised, poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is the one who what? Doesn't take offense at me. That's the blessing Don't take offense at Jesus Christ. Notice chapter 7 over in verse 49. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? Of course, 
even in chapter 8 and verse 25, they said to him, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed in saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Who is this? And here's the really sad part. The majority of the people then and the majority of the people today are just like those people then. They give the wrong answer. They give the wrong answer. Several years ago, I've told you this before, but several years ago in the year 2000, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to, over to Israel. We spent 19 days in Israel wandering around and seeing all kinds of things. But one of the most impactful for me was sitting at the center of government in Jerusalem. We were there with a group of people from the seminary, and we were sitting in this government area in Jerusalem, and, and we're getting a historical lecture about Israel and, and, and all that goes on in, in that area from the minister of religion in Jerusalem. And when he was done speaking, he asked us if we had any questions for him. And so I asked him, who do the Jews say Jesus is? First, I think my instructor almost threw a piece of paper at me thinking I was going to start some international incident or something. But the man was very kind, and he just smiled, and he says, I know that you are from an American religious institution, and you're not Jews. And he said, I know that many of you will say that he is God. But we do not believe that. He said, we believe that he was a good man, that he was a compassionate man, who did good for others, but he is not God. This is the minister of religion in Jerusalem. And of course, I wasn't necessarily surprised to hear him say that. None of us really were. Because we already knew how the Jewish people saw Jesus, right? You go and share the gospel with someone who's a, particularly an Orthodox Jew. They don't want to hear anything from the New Testament. They don't believe anything about the New Testament. But it was telling to me of the heart of man within the heart of man is just this rejection of Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus Christ, there is no hope for you. And I'm not talking about someone named Jesus, someone you say is Jesus. I'm talking about the Jesus of the Bible, the one who is God in the flesh. The only true living God, Jesus Christ. So we have to get the gospel right. We have to preach Jesus Christ like these men were preaching. All men must know who they need to believe and who it is they reject. And so this morning, just to wind our time in this passage, I just want to point out a couple of implications for us from our text. One is this, gospel preaching always exalts Jesus Christ. Gospel preaching always exalts Jesus Christ. That may sound rather simplistic for us because we would, some, some of us who, who or at least those in, from our church would say, well, of course it does. That's who we're preaching, right? So it sounds rather simplistic, but we need to recognize what is happening here in this text. Jesus, remember, has sent out 12. 
He has sent them out to preach. They have gone out and they have done just that. And yet the reports that are circulating because of their preaching said nothing about them and everything about who they were preaching about. Everybody's wondering about this man. He wasn't wondering about who these guys were. Notice from the text, we don't hear anyone saying in the question, and even in Herod's question, who it is. It just says, some are saying that John the Baptist has risen, some Elijah, and some one of the prophets of old. No one was saying, hey, listen, this band of 12 guys have risen up, and they're pretty good. They got some pretty good tricks up their sleeve. That's not what he's saying. What what he's asking is about this man. Who are they saying this guy is? Because that's who the preaching was about. They were hearing about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. Jesus Christ was making these things happen. Lives were being changed, not by these men, but by Jesus Christ. Who is this man? What man? Jesus. Who is that? That's the question. Nobody's talking about the 12. Why? Because gospel preaching always exalts Jesus Christ. It wasn't about them. All of the opinions reveal to us that people couldn't escape the fact that what was happening was happening not because of these 12, but because of Jesus Christ. They knew People are being saved, not because of these men. People are being saved because of the supernatural power of Jesus Christ to resurrect the dead soul and bring it back to life. He's the one who transfers all who believe from the clutches of sin's darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. It's Jesus Christ. No wonder we don't read anything about the twelve. Remember Theophilus back in chapter 1? Theophilus, I'm writing this so that you may know all that you've been taught about Jesus Christ. Well, listen, this is one of the things you need to know. When you go out and talk to people, you talk about Jesus Christ. They didn't exalt themselves. They just exalted Jesus Christ. I don't know how many times I hear people on the radio, YouTube, whatever it is you're listening to, and they're saying they're talking about the gospel. They're not talking about the gospel. They're talking about themselves, how great they are, how great their ministry is. How great what they're doing. It's not about Jesus Christ at all. Gospel preaching exalts Christ. Number two. Number two, gospel preaching always confronts sin no matter the cost to self. Gospel preaching always confronts sin no matter the cost to self. Certainly we see that clearly in the death of John. Death is recorded for us, not here in Luke, but back in Mark. And we know that John didn't beat around the bush when it came to sin. John called it out. He called a spade a spade. He said, this is sin. You cannot be doing this. He didn't do what so often happens by so many potential gospel proclamations. We want to share the gospel and maybe we got the moxie in us to go and we finally want to go share the gospel and yet we avoid the subject of sin. You cannot do that. John didn't say, oh listen Herod, 
I, I have some things I need to say, but I, I just don't want to get too specific with you, but, but there are things about your life that are wrong. He didn't do that. He said, listen, Herod, I know you're the king. I know you can take my life tomorrow, but listen, that relationship you're in is an illicit, sinful relationship that you can't be in. Of course, he went at it head on and said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He said what was true. He said what was needed to be said. And he trusted the Lord with the outcome. And I think that's important for us to understand. Because there's a lesson for us about preaching the truth of the gospel. In We who are in the evangelical community cannot live by fear when it comes to evangelism. Cannot live by fear when it comes to sharing the gospel. We must fear God rather than live by the fear of men. And that's what it is. We must not withhold the gospel because we fear somehow in sharing the gospel we we may lose some people who claim to be our close friends. We cannot do that. We must not withhold the gospel because we fear that we will lose our jobs. When God opens the door for opportunity and we're not stealing from the company by abusing their time that they hired us to do a job, when the door is open and someone asks us a question, we have to share the gospel because we cannot fear losing our jobs if we do. We cannot withhold the gospel because we fear that someone won't like us anymore. Some family member won't speak to us anymore. So often we do that, and yet we cannot. We cannot gloss over clear sin issues thinking that if we do, then the door to communication will be shut. Beloved, let us learn a lesson today from the life of every true gospel proclaimer. True gospel preaching always confronts the sin no matter the cost to self. Cost John his life. Better to preach the gospel with a few than to embrace sin with the millions. Gospel preaching always exalts Christ. Gospel preaching always confronts sin regardless of the cost of self. And number three, gospel preaching can be dangerous. Gospel preaching can be dangerous When the apostles returned, they gave an account of him, to him of all that he had done. And so he takes them with him and he withdraws by himself to a city called Bethsaida. And of course the crowds are aware of that. They follow. And Jesus begins to speak to them. Jesus continues to share the gospel. The apostles knew what had happened to John. They knew. They were the ones who went to get him. They went and got his body. They knew what happened to John. Mark's gospel clearly spells it out. They were fully aware of the danger of preaching the truth. And yet they proclaimed it anyway. Listen, you preach and you proclaim the truth in the world, no matter the cost, it can be dangerous. 
And so after their mission, after this dangerous mission of doing what God has called them to do, trusting Him all the way, they come back after their mission, they go with Jesus to reflect. Surely Jesus would inform them of what was to come. Surely He would have told them, listen, it's not going to get any easier for you guys. In fact, History tells us that all of these men died as martyrs for Christ. They went about preaching the truth, and in the end, it cost them their life. And maybe this is the exclamation point for us on all of this. Being called into God's family means that we are gospel proclaimers. We cannot escape that. We have been called into the family of God. We have been equipped by God. We have the message of God. We go and we proclaim the truth of God to dead, lost sinners, and sometimes it's dangerous to to us. And if we are going to be faithful to the task, and we ought to be faithful to the task, then we need to exalt Christ and not ourselves. We need to tell others about Jesus Christ, not about, hey, look at me. And we need to confront sin when when it's clear, it's there. We confront it with the truth, not because I have something about comparing my life to yours. No, it's Jesus Christ you must answer to. So we proclaim the truth, confront sin with the truth, no matter the cost, and we have to realize that it might cost us our life. It's just what it might do. Whether it does or not, I don't know, but it might. And so as I studied this, I couldn't help but thinking gospel missions has its effect. Right? We saw that even this morning as we were hearing the testimony of our dear brother in Papua New Guinea and the Bible's going out and the reason that he even knows Jesus Christ is because the gospel went. The gospel went there and somebody proclaimed the truth. And certainly there are dangers there like there are dangers here. And yet they keep going and sharing the gospel. Gospel missions has its effect. And sometimes it's on us. Sometimes it costs us our life. Praise God. Praise God. That these men did what Jesus asked them to do. As we sit here today, just like our dear brother sits here today, we know Jesus Christ because someone came and shared the gospel with us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, surely this morning as we reflect upon this truth, inventory our own lives and our own desires to hear you proclaimed and see you magnified and glorified. Certainly, each one of us here would say we have failed many, many, many times, and you, by your grace, continue to say, go and excel still more. And so, Lord, our desire is to just be faithful, continue to be faithful to you. We know that there are dangers abound, that Satan is prowling around seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't want to see your church expand. He knows his end is coming. And so we pray that you would open the doors for us to speak loud and clear, 
family and friends, co-workers, acquaintances, those who ask us questions. Lord, forgive us for fearing, fearing men when we ought to fear you. Help us to be bold, knowing that even in the end, if your will allows, it may take us from this place and usher us into the presence of you. And so help us just to be preachers of the gospel. Speak the truth in love, caring for others, knowing that if they don't know Christ, their judgment awaits. So open the hearts of each one of us and those who may be here with us who do not know Christ. and May they not leave this day without a relationship with him. We'll praise you in the end for it all because you deserve all the praise. And may they ask the same question, who is this they're talking about? So thank you for that. Bless each one here as they serve you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.